Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Methods of Rationality podcast. Today's episode is an interview with Alexander Wales, author of The Metropolitan Man. It was recorded a few days before the final episode of The Metropolitan Man aired. We used Skype to record, so the connection isn't the best, but you work with what you got. Here we go. Hello, I'm Ineash Brodsky, and with me on the line is Alexander Wales, author of The Metropolitan Man. Hi. Hello, Alexander. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today uh, about the story. And first of all, before anything else, I wanted to say thank you so much for writing it. It is an amazing story, and I loved reading it. Oh, thanks. When you wrote this, why Superman fanfic, as opposed to, I don't know, all the other options? I've always thought Superman was one of the most poorly used superheroes. When you watch a lot of like the Superman comics, or Superman TV show growing up, or you read the comics. A lot of it is just about how hard Superman can punch, um, which I which I hate because it's, it's not interesting to me. Um, and I'd always liked the character of Lex Luthor and thought he was underused. So uh, I write a fair amount of fan fiction, and usually it's because there's I see something that looks like a, a gem that has a lot of promise to me. Uh, there there are a lot of Superman stories that I like, a bunch of them on my shelves, but this was sort of the Superman story that I had always wanted to write. Out of curiosity, what are the ones on your shelves that you think are really good? Okay, uh, Superman Red Sun is probably my favorite. It's it's like one of the DC Elseworlds imprints, so they have nothing to do with the main canon. But it is uh, Superman comes down and lands in Soviet Russia, and he grows up communist. And uh, it's sort of communist Superman against a capitalist Lex Luthor, an examination of Superman through that lens where he's sort of trying to prop up the system of communism. He's still an idealist. Just that, for, That's my favorite. Yeah, it's still an idealist just for the different ideology this time. Yeah, um, that's my favorite. Uh, Superman for all seasons. Kingdom Come is good, but it's a little steeped in the DC-ness. Uh, there was a <laughs> limited series. <laughs> Can you give me a quick description of what DC-ness entails? Like, it's, it's Superman... Uh, Metropolitan Man is just Superman and Lex Luthor and Lois Lane and, a, like, a few other bits of DC in it. Mm-hmm. Kingdom Come is... It's Superman, but then it's, like, almost every hero that has ever been in their comic books. It's the full, like, DC universe. So it, I think that kind of weighs it down in uninteresting ways. Um, and then the last one... There was a, a limited series... I. I can't remember its name right now, but it, it has, like, Superman going to feed the poor in Africa, and it turns out oh. horribly for him. But oh. it's a very atypical Superman story. That does sound very interesting. How is it that it turns out horribly for him to feed the poor? I think he, like, brings the food, and it gets captured by warlords, and then he's fighting warlords, and people are getting upset with him because, I don't know, he's infringing on the sovereignty of people or something. Okay. It's not... It's That part of the story isn't what I'd consider great, but... It, it at least is trying to answer the question of Superman doing things other than punching people. Yeah. Um, a lot of people will call Superman the, the like, Boy Scout, mm-hmm. and they write him like that a lot, where he just doesn't do anything wrong, and his conflicts are uh, uninteresting ones to me, I guess. Because, again, who can punch harder? Yeah. Or e- even if it's not like, who can punch harder, sometimes it's just, you know, is is Superman, like, brave and courageous enough? And, yeah, he is. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, that's, just how, that's just how he's written. Yeah. So they have these, like, fake moral things. And I, I have read a, f- a lot of Superman comics, but... So if, um, if most of the conflicts of, of the traditional Superman stories are sort of unappealing to you, why was it that you became such a huge Superman fan? 
so I've had people in reviews for Metropolitan Man tell me that I like don't understand Superman and that I am not a Superman fan. Um, oh. Or, or that I like do Superman totally wrong. I don't know. I guess for me, he's so ungodly powerful most of the time. That's that's the interesting part to him. And a lot of it is growing up with it before uh, having refined my tastes a little bit. And I agree. The the interesting part in the story is what does it do to a person and how do they use that power? Just demonstrating the power over and over isn't really that compelling after you're done with the exposition. Yeah. I guess I would say one of the things I find interesting about Superman is that he is a mythological character mm -hmm. in the sense that when people write Superman stories, they're writing usually somewhere in the Superman mythology rather than trying to go strictly into a canon. That's that's one of the big differences between DC and Marvel is that Marvel has the track of stories and DC is just constantly rebooting and reimagining things. And so whenever you read a Superman story, you're sort of getting into a, a different writer's take on the Superman mythos rather than someone trying to continue it. So much more how, how myths were actually done back in the day when they were all relayed for the local area and the local populace. Yeah, and uh, Batman is like that too. That's... I. We'll eventually write a Batman fanfic, but Batman, oh, people, oh, people, take, people take their own their takes on Batman and who he is and what he means, and then they they disagree with each other when they write these stories. And DC allows that to happen, and that makes it a lot more a lot more interesting to me because you're sort of getting different angles on the character, and then different angles on how people interpret those characters. So you have just made me a very happy person by saying that because I loved Metropolitan Man so much. When do you know when you're going to be doing this Batman thing? Oh no, I have I have like three or four scenes written for it, but it's one of those things where I'm just, I'll go and write for it when the mood strikes me and I'm not in any rush. Yeah. So I I was wondering about that. Uh, when you wrote the Metropolitan Man, how much of it did you write beforehand and just release periodically, and how much did you write as you were going along? Um, I wrote most of it, I would say about 80%, but then some of that is filling stuff in in the course of revision. Like when I was going to put a new chapter out, sometimes I would think of a scene that I want to add in, or I would just rewrite something. The first draft was actually pretty radically different. It takes place in uh, the, the story as it stands now is in chronological order. The first draft sort of like bounced back and forth the the first scene is i think where chapter 11 is now and oh. then sort of bounces back and forth between the past and like between superman and lux luther and then superman's arrival but i i did a, a fair amount of rewriting and trying to figure things out but i'd say about 80 percent was done before i started posting that is really interesting because i'm a big fan of non-traditional and experimental structures and i realize that's not great for a mass appeal large market sort of thing but what what was it that this made you decide to go with a linear narrative instead of the bouncing around style um i don't 100 percent know i think i was just looking at all these things all these scenes i had written and then I just put them in a different order and it looked a lot better to me. It looked a lot better to just go from the beginning because if you do the non-linear narrative, you have to structure your information flow in a different way that can kind of intrude on the prose sometimes. And I've, I've always found that the best non-linear stories are ones where the emotional arc is linear and it just has to be told in a non-linear way to get the emotional beats right. Yeah. 
So uh, I, I saw some of the things that you cut because uh, you talked about and linked to a few of them on uh, Reddit a few times, like Lex getting his tire changed by Superman. Yeah. And the scene where uh, Lex touched the ship and hallucinated some info about it. How much of that kind of stuff was there that ended up on the cutting room floor? Maybe like two chapters worth. Okay. But I mean, that's, you know, six or seven scenes. In a 13 chapter book, uh, that's in, in the original cut. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. Um, originally, Lois played a bigger part in the story. Um, I mean, she, she still does, but she was like trying to investigate Superman's origins and Lex Luthor. And that was sort of because it was nonlinear. That's how we were getting some sort of insight into the things that Lex Luthor has has done. So the events of Metropolitan Man were largely the same. But then you have like 10 chapters of stuff that Lex Luthor has been doing. And Lois Lane is uncovering some of that as her character arc is going forward. And then. They, there's a point where they, the first draft and the final draft sort of diverge away from each other. Lex Luthor takes Lois to an underground lead-lined bunker by creating some catastrophe that Superman has to deal with, and he inducts her into a plot and stuff. And uh, there, there was a lot more stuff, but some of it just didn't didn't work, I guess. What was like the criteria used for deciding to cut something or not, or if it felt like it worked? Was it just intuitive? For the most part. My my wife does a lot of my beta reading, and so I try to I try to ask her opinion on things, which can sometimes be kind of she, she's a much more intuitive than um, I'm, I'm sort of a dissectional reader where I'll try to like tear tear things apart and see how they're working, and she just like feels certain things, and so I try to get into what she's feeling. And some some of it is if you cut a scene early on, then there are other scenes that you also have to cut following that. So there's some like just plot threads that get entirely cut because they don't have a payoff or they're just not interesting enough, I guess. I was wondering, when you first started writing this in uh, 1937, did you already know a lot about that era or did you have to do a lot of research for this? I had to do... A f- that's always been one of my... The sort of inner war period. That's always been one of my favorite times. When I had started this story, I'd been reading a lot of P.D. Wodehouse, who does uh, like Jeeves and Wooster. Um, that's what he's primarily known for. But that's set in the interwar period between like 1919 and 1934 or something. I, there, there's it, It's a very specific time period where a lot of Agatha Christie stories are set to. Much beloved by the British hmm. for cultural reasons. But um, And that was kind of the height of their empire too, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's sort of like this idyllic period between the the two world wars where people were very hopeful and there's not a lot of cynicism. It's not and that's not reflected in American history because, you know, um for us for it was us, just the Great Depression. Yeah, right. Um and I mean they had that too, but it's it's much less pronounced in their cultural works. But I I had to do a fair amount of research. The other reason that it interested me is cuz that's when my grandfathers were are both older they uh my grandfather on my father's side was born in 1917 and so that was sort of like the the period when he was growing up and he was growing up in the midwest it, it had interested me for for that reason too i was fascinated by your author's note where you said that your grandfather was a pacifist in the war and he was spit on for not going over to kill people yeah yeah they uh both my grandparents were mennonites who did um they, they built bridges and dug ditches and stuff as part of their conscientious objector status. Mm-hmm. That was during World War II, not World War One. Right. Uh, World War One was a m- much worse time for conscientious objectors. Why, why was it worse in World War One? Do you know? After it, they did some reforms after World War One, um, a lot of the a lot of the people who were conscientious 
conscientious objectors in World War One. It sort of was this unknown thing. And then World War One gave the government some experience and insight into conscientious objectors and how to treat them. There's actually a really interesting book written by one of the members of the draft board for World War Two. They had this three person draft board that would travel the entire country and they would come and interview conscientious objectors and sort of talk to them about their objections and their beliefs and stuff like that. But the guy who wrote this is a, a military general who was on this draft board, and he talks about the Mennonites that he saw and people's reasons for conscientious objection. And it gives a sort of overview that's contemporary to the early 1950s, I think, about the history of conscientious objection in America. Huh. I'll try to find the name of that, but... Um, it's really interesting stuff, uh, and he talks some about people's principled belief that killing is wrong under all circumstances, uh, and that informs that, that that informs some of Metropolitan Man. Yeah, I, after you read that, I kind of got a bit more of a feel about what Clark's father must have been like. I, I was wondering, in the course of your research, did you find anything that was like just really surprising that you had to put in the story? The orphan trains. I had not known about that. <laughs> that. I also learned about that from reading Metropolitan Man. That is crazy. I mean, it makes it makes a lot of sense, but it's like, I guess to a modern to a modern person, that seems kind of an objectionable way of handling like the problem of surplus of orphans is that they're going to be sent out for like farm labor, basically, by people who don't necessarily want them for anything but farm labor. It sort of feels like uh, shipping off little child slaves or something. Yeah. Was there anything that really worried you as you were writing that made you hesitant to hit the publish button? There was there was a point when I had published, I can't remember what chapter it was, but I was getting some negative feedback about the character of Lois Lane. Oh, um, I loved and, Lois. And her, people were saying she didn't have enough agency, that she wasn't like a strong enough character. And part of my worry there was that in the first draft she had been, Right. Like right. Her, her character arc was her trying to chase down the truth. And she was like being this headstrong reporter. And some of that got lost in going to second draft because I just didn't need her to do those things for the sake of the narrative. Like she, she wouldn't have a payoff, really. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things that I think if I ever I mean, I'm not going to rewrite Metropolitan Man. But if I did, that's one of the things that I would work on. I personally found her to be, I mean, she may not have driven the narrative very much, but there were some points where she did, and just her character was felt really fiery and strong throughout. Very, Good. Yeah, very assertive, and I, I liked how, how creepy she found Superman. That was and one of the other questions I had. It seemed like you drew, uh, put a lot of effort into like drawing attention to the creepy aspects and the scary aspects of his powers. Uh, was that like a conscious effort to fight against the hero image of him that people have? Um, it's one of those things where I kind of wish, I mean, yeah, it, it, that was the intent, but one of the things about this story is that you don't ever get Superman's perspective on what he's doing. Both Lex Luthor and Lois Lane are in their own ways, unreliable narrators. So like Lois finds it really creepy, but you don't get Clark's inner perspective where he doesn't find it creepy or where everything that he's doing is like an upstanding or it's not intended to be duplicitous necessarily even though it is i so uh, i don't didn't know. have it, much it, of it was choice. intended to be there yeah it was it was intended to to be there but my preference is for people to read between the lines a little bit mm -hmm. uh superman doesn't have any that i can recall i don't think i left any in he doesn't have any viewpoint scenes in the story just to make him more alien and enigmatic that is also another thing that got cut moving from first draft to second draft i had a few in there and i just cut them because i didn't think they were 
Oh, wow. That would have made the story just drastically different, having his POV right. in there. Right. I thought that that was telling too much. Yeah. No, I, I like that he is so alien, but in part because we already have... We're on Superman's side from the get-go. I mean, he's been in our childhood yeah. and in our national psyche, so I thought it was a good uh, counter, like, pushing inside. Did you think it was, like, too much or not enough? No, I, I'm pretty happy with the story as it stands. It's one of those things... I Because I get the I get reviews... Even now, I get, like, it's been three, four years since the story is published, and I still get, like, a review or two every week. Wow. You know, it's mostly, some of it's just people saying, hey, good story, um, which is, you know, I like getting that. But um, other times, it's it's deeper criticism. And one of the criticisms that I get most frequently is that Superman doesn't have, he gets deconstructed, but not reconstructed at the end, which I'm not, I, I don't 100% agree with. But it is one of the things that people will comment on, that he's not superman enough but people have different ways of interpreting superman for some people that boy scout image is what they go to as like an escape yeah i guess that's their sort of fantasy thing and that's why they read superman and you take that away or you pull back the veil on a lot of the stuff that superman does or just you've ruined their chocolate cake yeah right and it's one of those things where i would put a warning to just be like hey this is the kind of story it is but i don't want to spoil it by doing that and so I, I would rather those people just be unhappy with their experience. <laughs> I, can, can I say that I'm kind of jealous that you still get like two reviews a week? I've published a few things. There's almost no feedback you ever get. I think I've gotten maybe 10, 12 comments slash reviews in all the years that they've been out there. One of the reasons that I think I get them is because of the ways that people find this story. They'll get recommended it and then they'll come to it and won't have any idea what it's about going in. Do you get as many comments on your original universe stuff, or is it more of a fan fiction sort of thing? It's mostly on fan fiction. It's mostly on that one story. Um, I get them on other stuff from time to time, but I think that this story in particular hits people. They either really like it because of the deconstruction of Superman, which I don't think is very common in fan fiction, or they really dislike it because it's not the sort of thing that you typically see in Superman fan fiction. So I get sort of a mix of the two. And this is also one of the more popular Superman fanfics on fanfic.net. If you just go like to like Superman stories and then sort by number of reviews or like favorites or something, this story will be near the top, which is fantastic. A lot, of, a, a lot of people will just come in and they get a different experience than if you like go to our rational, the, the subreddit and, and find it there because then you know what you're getting into. Yeah. And may I say congratulations. That is awesome. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that I don't really have anyone. I don't have any like real life friends that I can be like, hey, I wrote <laughs> this like really popular Superman fanfic. <laughs> right. I uh, am famous in certain corners of the internet. <laughs> yeah, I have a very mild amount of fame. <laughs> <laughs> it is, you know, when I saw, um, God, what was the terrible uh, movie Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice? As I was watching that, I was like. This could have been so good if they had just gotten Alexander Wales in to write the script. Because you could see that was kind of what they were trying to do, and they just couldn't pull it off. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, oh, they're going to, you know, they're mad at Superman because he's basically being this sovereign entity that is not answerable to anyone, and it's yeah. scary. And Batman's worried that he's going to destroy the world or take it over or something, much like Lex was. And, I mean, Superman... <laughs> Uh, that's one of the other things is that um, one of the comments that I get on the story a lot is that Superman is not a killer that like that really upsets people. That's a line that isn't crossed. And then he does that in was it Man of Steel? 
the, the one that's immediately before that. Mm-hmm. And then in uh, Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, there's this scene where Lois Lane is talking to some army general or a politician or something. She says, Superman is not a killer. I'm like, that was the end of the last movie. <laughs> right. You, I mean, he, he literally murdered a man. I, he had his reasons. There were good reasons. But you can't just say he, he doesn't kill people because he obviously does. Yeah. He just does it for what he perceives are the right reasons. And that's, I don't know. It felt like they were trying to backtrack on that because that was an unpopular decision in Man of Steel. A lot of people disliked that that ending it was just a whole run of bad movies yeah yeah i've heard wonder woman i haven't seen it but i've heard wonder woman is their first good dc movie so i'm I'm looking forward to that i saw it uh when it came out and uh i i personally liked it a lot i thought it was great fun little clunky in the beginning but for a superhero movie good superhero movie yeah uh okay then uh getting back to to your sorts of things uh since i believe you have a day job still uh (laughs) since fan fiction pays all the monies uh what does your writing process look like so i actually a year and four months ago my my son was born and i've been a stay-at-home dad since then so my writing schedule is i mostly write after he goes to bed one or two hours but four or five if i'm really taken with something I don't know. Lately, I've just been pouring words into whatever strikes me, which isn't a great method. I have some novels that I've been that are in the editing stage, trying to um, polish them up to find them a home in traditional publication, which pays much better than Internet publication. Yes. Well, Um, I wish you luck. You buy novels. So you have more than one. Yeah, I have. I have two. Fantastic. that That are first draft complete. How long is the editing process taking you? Because I, I was surprised that it's taken me as long to edit as it took me to write the first draft. The editing process takes it takes a long time because I don't really like editing. And then there are like the copy editing is fine, but like changing specific words or rephrasing things. That's I can bang that out pretty quickly. It's the when I think that there are structural edits that I need to do, or I decide that someone's plot thread isn't good enough, or that a character doesn't do enough and should be cut. Oh, wow. And then you just have all this work redoing the entire structure of the book. Yeah, and that's one of the books that I've been working on editing for quite some time. I prefer writing to editing, so (laughs) I do writing instead of the editing that I maybe should be doing. But one of the books that I'm editing is, it's a time travel book, and so if you change one thing in that oh no you, you you're <laughs> sort of you have to like scan the whole thing because it's supposed to be this sort of causal interaction with all parts of it if that ever comes out that is going to be amazing and epic well i'm i'm hoping so but it's taking me quite some time just because of the nature of that specific story and at a certain point you have to just say that's good enough and i got to decide that it's done being edited and send it out and work on something else in the meantime. Yeah. Only so much effort that you can put into one thing before, I don't know, then you, I, then I sometimes start worrying about maybe I'm ruining it now. I'm over polishing it and taking out the little bits and edges that gave it teeth earlier. And I, some of the stuff I posted online, I've edited after the fact and people were like, Oh, that was my favorite part. Ah. I was like, well, you should have said something. (laughs) All I heard was people complaining. (laughs) Ah, it it is crazy difficult. I wish I could have like a thousand beta readers and do A-B testing with them. Right. (laughs) Yeah. That's one of the, one of the benefits of, of posting things online is you, you will eventually get people who will just tell you what's wrong, but then it's online and you can't really edit after the fact. I mean, you can, but it's, not very worthwhile in my opinion 
and also then it's online, so it's not publishable for money after that. Yeah, there are some exceptions to that, but you need to be you need to be like wildly successful. Yeah, you need to be Hugh Howard. Yeah, The Martian is the yes, other one. Yes, yes, yeah, there's a web novel. Yep. Have you always been a writer, or is it like since childhood? Yeah, I started a website like back in the geo. It was a GeoCities website, so it wasn't mm-hmm. anything like fancy. But that was back in 1998 or something when I was in like sixth grade. Yeah, it's back when GeoCities was fancy. Yeah, I, I've had uh, short fiction up. Uh, it was all terrible, but um, <laughs> well, I, <laughs> you learn as you go, right? <laughs> yeah, you learn as you go. And I wrote a novel that was terrible for my senior project in high school. So I've been I've been doing it a pretty long time. I don't usually go that long of stretch without writing. And then I, I in college I double majored in computer science and English, so I did a lot of writing, like creative writing. Then, uh, did you have any specific goals when you wrote Metropolitan Man, aside from just telling a really cool Superman story? No, nope. my goal is always to tell a story that I would want to read. It, it's easier for me to get hung up on what other people will like. And so usually if I'm writing a story, it's because I have not seen a story like the one that I'm writing. And so I just want to, I want that work to exist and I'm the one who has to do it. (laughs) That is probably the best reason, I think, to write. And I think it comes through in people's writing. There's some times you read an author and it just feels soulless. And I'm not sure why they even picked up the pen in the first place if this wasn't something that was just driving them. Yeah, for, for money. Well, I guess. Yeah, but it just doesn't feel the same. Some of the um, ghost-written stuff for the Alex Cross books, a lot of them are written by ghostwriters, and it's just, you know, writers who have a talent for writing, but they don't really care about what they're doing, I guess. There's no... It's just a product. Yeah, they have a skill with putting the words together, but they don't have a, a burning desire to make a thing. Right. And it's not like writing makes you much money unless you're wildly successful yeah unless you win the the lottery basically yeah so about uh metropolitan man itself by the time this interview goes live the last chapter will have already aired a couple weeks ago i was wondering are you sad that lex won um sad (laughs) (laughs) because i when i read it i i kind of see how lex would have had to win with the world being the way it is that it's not a comic book fairy tale and in the end he's just more ruthless and more brutal but i kind of wish that he hadn't and on the other hand i'm kind of relieved that he did because now we don't have this big existential threat of maybe superman does have a stroke and accidentally destroys the world but but man it was just it was heartbreaking for me it's it's i i read the ending as bittersweet Mm mm-hmm um, enough time has passed now that I can. Uh, last time I read Metropolitan Man, I, most of it was fresh to me. You know, I, I know what's coming, obviously, but when I'm reading, I'm like, oh, I, there are like little details that I missed, and I can actually get some something back out of the work. So to me, it it reads as bittersweet. But I kind of my hope was that people would read it in different ways, depending on their own personal experiences and philosophies. And I got a lot of that in in feedback. Some people were like. Some people were ecstatic at the end. Oh, yeah? That, that is not, not my personal reading, but it's one that I had hoped was a possibility for people, I guess. But some people are just like, yay, Lex won, everything's great. <laughs> I, I, I'm so torn because I understand the mathematics of it, and it's the same reasoning we don't want to rush into strong AI, you know? You, yeah. But 
but oh, I, I think it may be a lot of it just the mythology of Superman all my childhood. He is the wonderful Boy Scout slash father figure person. He's basically Jesus, you know? You don't go yeah. around killing <laughs> Jesus. I, I, I think I've said before that if there was a god, we would have to kill him because it's the only way you can really have an impact in the universe. Otherwise, you're just sort of pets that are being taken care of by God. And so in that way, I'm glad. But on the other hand, he was a good person and he was preventing a lot of bad things. So it's, it's tough. Yeah, good. <laughs> okay. I, I guess that was just me opening up and wondering if you felt anything similar when you wrote it. Like, did you yeah, regret but... that you had to make Lex the win at the end? I did a little bit, but it's one of those things where I knew I knew what I wanted my ending to be, and I wanted that I wanted that specific feeling, that sort of like that feeling of unclearness, yeah, where where people could argue if they wanted to. And I think that's that's the sign of well, I don't know for me anyway. That's the sign of stories that I like when they leave me afterwards thinking more about them and feeling ambivalent, but yeah. but still having enjoyed the trip. Yeah, those are the stories I like, too. I, I like to, you know, everything is wrapped up for the most part at the end. But the con the central conflicts have been resolved, but then there, there's still something that, that lingers after. That's what I always try to do with endings to my stories. I was wondering, I read in one of the Reddit posts that someone asked if you were Superman and uh, Lex Luthor had you powerless under kryptonite, how would you convince him to let you live? And I don't know if it was you that said this or if it was uh, you commented on it afterwards, but someone said along the lines of, give an even greater existential threat, uh, say that there is an asteroid headed towards Earth. I pushed it on its way here before I came to see you, just in case you tried to kill me. Or, uh, or there's more Kryptonians coming after me, and they might not be as friendly. Uh, do you think if Superman would have tried something like that, Lex would have still killed him? Because I get the distinct impression that Lex would assume Superman is too good of a person to have set that sort of dead man switch, and so would go ahead and kill him anyway. But I was wondering what your opinion as the actual author is. I would be interesting, interested to know what I said there. Um, okay. But I think he might have stopped. I don't know. It's it's one of those things that... I, when, I, when I was writing, I was trying to... You know, some of um, Lex Luthor's precautions are overly paranoid, some of his fears he, he like thinks about being like ripped apart and destroyed. And so fear is at least partially driving him. I don't know. I, I guess in my mind, he, it depends on what makes the better story. Mm -hmm. I could argue it either way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, that is one of the comments I get a lot from people is, is like, well, that was a good ending, but Lex is kind of screwed when Zod shows up like two months later. Well, he's, he's still got kryptonite. Yeah. Yeah. He does. Or, or Brainiac is the other big threat. But this, this, this story sort of ignores the wider DC universe right. for the most part for that purpose. Because otherwise, otherwise, if Green Lantern is there and you know that there's you know, a galactic police force that is defending against all kinds of threats, and then the, the calculus gets a lot different. Then it's you. just a completely different story. I mean, right. the, the entire story right. was, you know, God shows up, what do you do? It, and when you have an entire galactic society, then that's just, that's a different realm of, of narrative. Yeah. Uh, I had a question from someone. Do you have any thoughts of what would the uh, most good look like if Lex and Superman teamed up? Like, would we have lifted sh uh, satellites into orbit or what, what would they have been doing together? There was a satellite subplot in the first draft 
Oh. So I think that's I think that's probably it. The the Superman in this story is he's not at the absolute highest end of Superman's in the combined DC mythology, but he's towards the higher end of it. And I think space travel might be the that's usually my go to if someone has any kind of flying power or so yeah, I think it would probably be putting satellites in orbit. There was a cut scene where they are bringing in like transatlantic communication as a way of staving off World War II. Oh, I nice. Think. But I think it, it would probably be diplomatic in some sense, as yeah. like trying to stop World War II from happening and like stop wars in general, because it's like enormous loss of life for not great reasons uh, that are easily preventable by Superman. But in terms of like using raw power, it probably be putting satellites in orbit to get better com- worldwide communication and then identifying stuff for mines maybe but i don't know it, it superman's max power isn't defined within the story there's a it's not a gag necessarily but there's a sort of a running thing that i found funny to do which is that every time superman's top speed gets quoted it's slightly higher oh. than the last time oh cool <laughs> Because, like, Lex Luthor gets more information, and he's like, okay, Superman's actually faster or stronger than previously thought. And this keeps happening, sort of in the background. Since so much of it is allusions to things that are moving quickly, and I don't know how fast things are relative to each other, I kind of missed that. Yeah, it's one of those very minor things that uh, just... Yeah, it's an Easter egg for for people that (laughs) know these things. So what what are the sort of influences on, on your work? Like, who do you wish you could write like? Hmm. Uh, it's a hard question. I feel like my like favorite authors sort of shift as time goes by. Like I used to be so enamored with Kurt Vonnegut. I, I read well, I read all his books when I was in high school and early college, and I was like, yeah. And I tried to emulate that style. And then eventually, there weren't any more books to read, and so I went on to other stuff, and I sort of lost that. I guess it's uh, I kind Kurt of Vonnegut. I kind of get the feeling Vonnegut is like a younger man sort of writer. Like, I loved him when I was that sort of age, too. And then a few years back, I went back and read uh, Cat's Cradle for the first time, because somehow I skipped over that. And I was like, I really, really hate this, and I hate Kurt Vonnegut now. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if just my perspective changed as as I grew older or something. That's one of the reasons I don't revisit Vonnegut, is because I'm a little worried that I'll read them and I'll be like, oh... I see what I saw in this when I was like a teenager, but I don't feel that way now. Um, I'm the same way with Chuck Palahniuk, who wrote uh, Fight Club and Lullaby and a bunch of others. And I liked him a lot when I was a teenager, and I tried to emulate his style to some extent. Then I just, because I'm like 31 now, <laughs> um, and I got in my late 20s, and I was reading Chuck Palahniuk, and I was just not enjoying it at all. Let's see, on my shelves, uh, Terry Pratchett, I love. Which is interesting, because there isn't a lot of humor in your things. No, I'm terrible at humor. Yeah, humor is really I've, hard. I've tried. I wrote this book that is technically online. It's uh, Dark Wizard of Donkirk. It started out with me trying to write like a Terry Pratchett-esque comedy, and then by like the fourth scene or something, they're like pulling these teeth out of a dead man and <laughs> it's not funny at all it's no grim and dark it's like okay not writing a comedy anymore yeah. let's not try that <laughs> i was wondering what you're working on right now or what's coming out next what i'm working on today uh is sort of a cthulhu dungeon crawl type thing Ooh, as a piece of fiction yeah 
Huh. I think I'm like a quarter of the way to novel length on that right now. I've been writing it really fast because I've been taken with the idea, which is how I write. I get an idea I really like and I just spew out a bunch of words. I've been doing a web serial Glim Warden that I will start updating again soon. I have like three chapters. I have the next three chapters written for it. It's at like chapter 12 or 13 or something like that right now. I have the next three chapters written for it and I'm sort of waiting till I know that things are firm. Because if you're writing a serial, you can't really change things after the fact as much because like half your audience will have read the first draft of the chapter and the other half will have read the other draft and then they sort of disagree on things and they... Yeah, once it's down, you're kind of stuck with it. Yeah, so I've been trying to... I, I like the serial format, but... But that is, like, both the thing I admire and that most terrifies me about serial format. Like, the people who do it, I am I am happy that they do it because I love reading serial format along with everyone else. But on the other hand, just having it my first draft down and out and not being able to change it is... I don't know if I could do that. It, it can get a little stressful. So, uh, Glim Morden, how, how long is that going to be overall, do you think? Well, I've been on a hiatus for, like, quite a while now. Um, yeah, I think you started it, like, two years back, right? Uh, oh, that might actually be right. It feels like it was a year ago, <laughs> okay. but I don't think it was. This is, a, like, a planning fallacy thing. But in the outline as it was first written, Glim Morden would be about a million words long. Wow. So it'd be, Jesus. All, it'd be approaching the one-tenth mark. I did not realize it was going to be that big. Yeah, well, it might not be that big because, again, sort of like that's a that's a huge commitment in terms of of writing. And I was I was I, I hit bumps in the road, and I'm like, well, I have to refactor this, and now it's it's getting more complicated. Maybe I just want to lower down because it was like ten different books basically, or that was the plan. Um, so it's possible that some of those later ones will get cut, especially with characterization work that gets done in the course of writing. Will you let us know when? I, I don't know that it will be that long, but yeah, I'll, I'll let I'll let you know when I've started posting again. But I need to get the house in order, right? And also, if uh, if you manage to get one of the books originally published as well, totally let us know because that would be awesome. Say, what is it that you're reading right now in the ratfic genre? I'm following Pokemon Origin of Species by Daystar Eld and uh, Animorphs the Reckoning. Those are the two that I'm following most closely. Um, Unsung by Scott Alexander just uh, recently finished. Those are the big three. I more go for shorter stuff mm -hmm. if I can find it because it's not. I'm a, I'm a little bit of a hypocrite because I have a long project that's on hiatus right now. But a lot of the serials, you know, you get to the in-progress mark and you're just like, oh, come on. Yeah. Or a lot of people will just abandon stuff. And I would prefer to just read shorter stuff. So I usually just, um, I run the, uh, we do a bi-weekly writing challenge on the subreddit. So I, I read all those, which are sometimes up to 5,000 words in length. Those are my little doses but when i'm heavily writing like i am now i kind of try to avoid reading too much because i it seeps into my work i sort of have a prejudice where i get the feeling that if you can't tell a coherent story arc within a few hundred thousand words there might be a problem with what you're writing <laughs> okay so methods of rationality is a bit of an exception i could have read that forever but on the other hand it probably could have been shorter too but once i see word counts going up of over 500,000 or so i'm like i don't think i'm even going to start this even at 200,000 i'm a bit leery of it cuz i don't know I, I need to get like some multiple recommendations yeah. before i invest the effort on something like that right i i'm the same way cuz there are some you know 
this comes from one of my beliefs about serial fiction, but basically if you put out chapters of a consistent quality every week, your quality doesn't need to be that high for you to eventually gain a following because people will not opt out of stories terribly often. Like pe- once people have started, yeah. they're compelled to keep going. So if you can just put out one chapter a week for years, you eventually get people who uh, will build up community and, and stuff like that. And I think that's kind of my criticism of some serial fiction is just it has a community because of inertia. I think I get something a little different out of serial fiction because it is a lot of it to me about the community. So I judge it. I judge. <laughs> I judge some serial fictions more for the community than for the work itself. Yeah. Well, I, I know. I, I mean, I was you know heavily involved in the HPMR community when it was ongoing. I spent so much time in that subreddit and I posted so much and I I loved that aspect of it. The like the theories and the talking about character and stuff like that and the recursive fan fiction. It was glorious. I kind of feel uh, sort of a little bit sad for people that come into it now that it's not ongoing, that they don't get to participate in all that. Yeah, me too. But, you know, I guess like history anywhere, you're just sometimes not there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Alrighty. Uh, well, thank you for talking to me. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. After this episode was recorded, Alexander Wales contacted me to let me know that the book he referred to was The Conscientious Objector by Major Walter Guest Kellogg. There's a link in this episode's description on the website at hpmorpodcast.com. There are also links to Alexander's other works, including Glimwarden. Come back in two weeks when guest narrator Jim Hines reads Alexander Wales' short story, Instruments of Destruction.